This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Rell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. This is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about The Warlord, number 18, Star Slayer, number 4, John Sable, 12 and 13, and Green Arrow, 9 through 12, featuring the return of Shadow. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrail.com, which is his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there along with occasional news updates. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you're unable to meet Mike Grell at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Cress of Cat School Comics. He's the official representative for Mike Grell's commissions. Scott's always friendly and helpful. Also, as we've mentioned before, fans will want to check out the trailer for the upcoming movie Star Raiders The Adventures of Saber Rain, which features Mike Grell in a small role. It looks like a fun sci-fi adventure. You can find a link to the trailer in our show notes. And here are a few other resources that Mike Grell fans will enjoy. The Mike Grell page on Facebook, superbly run by Gus Ceballos. The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network with Professor Allen, who's a Mike Grell fan and occasionally covers his comics. The Geek Brain Podcast from Jeff Messer, who has a couple of wonderful interviews with Mike Grell on his show. The occasional Emerald Archer Podcast from Ed and Nick Moore covers Green Arrow comics past and present. And Black Canary fans should really check out Ryan Daly's Powers of Fishnets podcast, as well as the Feathers and Foes podcast with Ashford, Leah, and Mark. Links to all of these resources are in the show notes for those of you who want to check them out. We enjoy sharing listener feedback and would love to hear from you. Drop us a note to let us know what you think of the show. Please give us your thoughts about any of Mike Grell's comics. I'm always interested in knowing what people like best and how they first discovered his work. We'll give our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcast. It's Trekker Talk, devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair, from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. We'll include a link to that podcast in our show notes as well. Star Slayer, The Director's Cut, number 4, July 1995. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with the Jolly Roger, the last of the great interstellar spaceships, with its sails unfurled, soaring through the space on solar winds. The ship is a relic of an earlier age when humans were at peace and could leisurely sail among the stars on luxury ships. Now it's armed with weapons and a warp drive has been added. 
It's on a desperate mission, and on board is an even older human relic. Torin is admiring the ship's abilities and asks Tamra if it's magic or science. She explains that it's a science from centuries past, when people had time to relax and enjoy a slow trip through space, even though warp speed could take them from star to star much more quickly. To aid them in their mission, Tamra explains they need to find the long-lost fragments of the Amulet of Power that was divided among the human colonies in the distant past. The Jolly Roger is approaching Venus, and she explains that the fragment held by the Venusians may have been destroyed. That could jeopardize their entire mission because they don't know if the amulet will work without collecting all of the fragments. As the colonists from Venus knew their planet was in danger from the unstable solar activity, they prepared to launch an attack on Earth to gain territory, but their fleet was caught in a lethal nova and destroyed. As the Jolly Roger passes the wreckage of the Venusian fleet, they receive a distress signal coming from the floating debris. In the hopes that someone survived and might know where the missing fragment is, Torin and Tamra board the Bowspirit shuttle and begin to search the area. They find a partially intact ship is the source of the signal, but on board they discover only the long-dead remains of the crew. Suddenly, a giant and menacing-looking battle android confronts them. Just as it strikes, Tamra notices it is wearing the amulet fragment on a chain around its neck. The android is swift and powerful and quickly knocks both Tamra and Torin to the floor. Our two heroes are quickly back on their feet, and Torin strikes the android with his sword, slicing off one of its arms. The battle android grabs Tamra and is preparing to crush her head when she ignores the instructions she gave Torin in the previous issue and shoots the android with her laser. The blast ricochets and triggers a series of explosions, and the ship's computer alarm system announces the reactor core is damaged and will explode. The severely damaged battle droid races from the room, and Tamra starts to chase after it. Realizing the danger, Torin tries to get her to stop and retreat, but when she refuses, he knocks her out with a punch and carries her back to the Bowspirit. In a narrow escape, the shuttle is just out of range when the ship's reactor explodes. As the two depart the Bowspirit aboard the Jolly Roger, Torin tries to explain that it is best to survive. Tamra disagrees, telling him the amulet fragments are worth more than either of their lives. However, the two of them haven't noticed that the battle droid stowed away on their shuttle to escape the danger, and it lowers itself to attack them. Torin swiftly spears it with his sword and electrifies it, and it falls to the ground. Torin removes the amulet fragment and hands it to Tamra. She takes it in her hand and then punches Torin, knocking him to the floor, and says, Don't ever strike me again, and walks away happily twirling the fragment on its chain. This issue has a great, creepy cover. Torun and Tamra are walking through the corridor of the Venusian ship. The fierce-looking battle droid is hiding above a doorframe, preparing to drop down onto them. The art in this series continues to be outstanding. The title page is a gorgeous two-page spread featuring the Jolly Roger with the sails unfurled and the sun in the background. It looks very three-dimensional. As with previous issues, there is minimal use of panels on some pages, and I love how the art leads the eye to follow interesting paths along the pages. Another page features a great view of Tamra as her black hair transitions into the starry sky above Venus. And there's a really interesting sequence I liked in which Torin shows his disgust that the influence of his enemies, the Romans, has survived in the names of the planets. This was definitely an action-packed and fun read, with great ship designs and a very menacing-looking android. I really liked it. Hey everybody, I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it. 
for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Okay, so anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. The Wardlord number 18, Blood Moon, February 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Todd Klein. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Travis Morgan and Tara are on horseback continuing their search for Demos, who has kidnapped their son Joshua. The giant hound, Shadow, runs ahead of them. Just then, a giant T-Rex emerges from the jungle. Morgan's horse bolts, throwing him to the ground. Tara reacts swiftly, turning her horse and racing toward Morgan. She reaches down and grabs his hand and pulls him up onto her horse. But the two of them know they can't outrun the T-Rex with the weight of two people on a single horse. Suddenly, their horse emerges from the jungle onto a barren surface. The horse loses its footing, throwing both Morgan and Tara to the ground. They know they now have no hope of escaping the T-Rex. But the T-Rex pauses at the edge of the barren strip of land and then turns back into the jungle. Morgan and Tara stare at the barren strip of land. It is narrow, but extends as far into the distance as they can see. Just then, they see what looks like a small blood-red moon hovering just over the barren strip of land and heading toward them. It is as if it has been orbiting just above the ground, killing the vegetation beneath it. Two small flying ships emerge from the small moon and begin firing lasers at our heroes. Tara lures one of the small ships toward her and then leaps out of its way, causing it to crash behind her. But the two soon find themselves bathed in a bright light and drawn up into the moon. There they are greeted by Borna, who explains what appears to be a small moon is in fact a starship carrying the last survivors of a star system that went supernova, destroying 17 planets and wiping out their civilization. Fifty generations of crossbreeding has nearly destroyed them, but they believe that Morgan and Tara could help revitalize their race. Morgan wants nothing to do with that and grabs Tara and the two start to run, but a force field stops them in their tracks. A soldier takes Morgan to the transmutation chamber, where Borna says he will turn him into a beast. Tara watches in horror as Morgan is transformed into what looks like a minotaur. Borna leads Tara to his chambers, but she manages to distract him, grabs his laser gun, and shoots him. She rushes back to the transmutation chamber and orders the soldier to reverse the effects on Morgan. The two then run to the hangar and take two of the small flying ships, but a stray shot from a soldier hits the reactor core, just as our heroes fly out of the starship, it explodes behind them. Even though these two stories were published many years apart, it is interesting to see how many common elements turn up in both this Warlord story and the Star Slayer story. Planets have been destroyed by supernovas, there are DNA modifications of humans, and a ricochet laser shot strikes a reactor destroying both ships. The cover features a scene of Morgan and Tara running from the advancing blood moon, with one of the small flying ships firing a laser at them. My favorite page from the interior of the book is a similar view of Morgan and Tara as the blood moon first comes into view behind them. Again, I am pleased to see that Tara is shown very heroically. She rescues Morgan from the T-Rex and manages to destroy one of the flying ships. I really applaud Mike Grell for creating strong and independent heroines long before it was common.
Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. John Sable Freelance, number 12. MIA Part 1, May 1984. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors Janice Cohen. Letters Ken Brusenak. Editor Mike Gold. 1969. North Vietnam releases a number of POWs as a token gesture. Many of these POWs secretly carry letters from other POWs to their families. The president plans a big show of these letters by delivering them to the families, but a group of activists steal the letters and mail them directly to the families. 1970. At a U.S. Air Force base in Vietnam, John Sable is a clerk at an intelligence office. He has only three more days before he ships home when a rocket hits the base and a soldier is killed. Sable is shocked to see the name on the dead man's papers nearly matches his own. He feels it could have been him. 1984. John Sable is woken by a phone call. It's the landlady from Sonny Pratt's apartment. She's worried because Sonny has been in a drunken stupor for days. Sable is surprised, thinking that Sonny was spending the holidays with his family. At Sonny's apartment, Sable flips through his address book and finds that Sonny has only one relative living in New York, so he goes to visit Hollis Pratt. She doesn't want to have anything to do with Sonny, and Sable wants to know why. She shows him a photo of her husband Bill and his red-headed friend Rusty Olson. They were in the Air Force in Vietnam, and their plane was shot down in 1968. Both have been listed as missing in action for the last 16 years. However, Rusty Olson's family received one of the secreted POW letters in 1969, saying that he was still alive. Because of that, Hollis thinks there's a chance that her husband Bill could still be alive in Vietnam as well. However, Sonny has tried to convince her to move on and remarry for the sake of her two teenage children. She resents Sonny for that, and doesn't want to have anything to do with him or to let him see his grandchildren. Later, Sable visits the State Department, but is told that there is no evidence that there are other POWs still in Vietnam. There's nothing the government can do without proof. Sable thinks back to the poor soldier who died in the airstrike when he was in Vietnam. Then Sable remembers another soldier named Jerry he shared a bar brawl with one night in Saigon when he called him Arclight. Sable goes to a rundown hotel where he finds Jerry asleep. Jerry wakes in a start and slashes out at Sable with the hook that has replaced one of his hands. When Jerry recognizes Sable, he calls him Arclight. Sable tells Jerry he's going back to Vietnam. If Jerry will go with him, he'll pay him $25,000, plus offer a $100,000 insurance policy for his family. Jerry wants to go back, too. He says he left more than a hand in Vietnam. He left his soul. Jerry knows someone from Vietnam now living in the city who can be their interpreter and guide. Later, Jerry introduces Sable to Trung, a former colonel from Vietnam. 
He is struggling to feed his family and can use the $25,000. The trio begin formulating plans for cover identities and where they will be able to cross the demilitarized zone. Sable has arranged for a fishing boat to be one mile off the coast every third night while they are there. This is a really sad story in so many ways. It is filled with the realities of war and the aftermath of war, and how it impacts individuals and families. It's an important story, and Mike Grell tells it well. It's gripping and compelling to read, and you want to know what happens next. Though it certainly isn't a fun read the way the previous issue about Maggie the Cat was. The art does an excellent job of conveying the different periods of time, with clothes and hairstyles being very different in the late 60s and early 70s sequences compared to the 1980s sequences. Mike Grell uses rounded panels to make it clear when scenes are flashbacks. A particular favorite sequence of mine is the two-page spread when Sable is remembering Jerry in the past and looking for Jerry in the present. Every other panel is in a different period of time, but it flows smoothly and clearly thanks to the great art. There are so many distinct expressions on Sable's face during this issue. The horror on his face when he sees the dead soldier with a nearly identical name. The sadness on his face when he finds Sonny has been all alone during the holidays. And the determination on his face when he discusses his plans with Jerry and Troon. John Sable Freelance, number 13, MIA, part 2. Here There Are Tigers, June 1984. Written and illustrated by Mike Grill. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Editor, Mike Gold. The trio of John Sable, Jerry, and their guide, Troon, have been in Vietnam for nine days, sneaking through the jungle from village to village, showing farmers photos of the two men, Sonny's son, Bill Pratt, and the red-headed Rusty Olson, but with no luck. Jerry occasionally talks about how soldiers received parades when they returned home from other wars, but not when they returned home from Vietnam. He's never been able to adequately explain the war to his wife, Sheila, which has strained their marriage. Sable isn't feeling well and develops a fever. Sable definitely is not at his best when a wild Asian buffalo emerges from the jungle and begins to charge our trio. Sable's quick reflexes help him shoot the creature, but as it falls, it still slams into him, cracking several ribs. Sable loads up on antibiotics, but the fever continues to climb, and Jerry is certain he is developing malaria. The trio see a Vietnamese patrol in the distance, and they realize they must have heard the gunshot that killed the buffalo. They run through the jungle, but when Sable stumbles, Jerry tells Troon they have to leave him behind. The patrol finds Sable. They tie him up and begin torturing him and accuse him of being with the CIA. But while Jerry knew they had to leave Sable behind, it was only so they could regroup and return on their own terms. He and Troon sneak into the camp and take out each of the Vietnamese soldiers. Jerry carries Sable away. They make their way to the coast to catch the fishing boat that will be waiting every third day, but they're running late. It's already 12.30 at night, and the boat will depart at 1 a.m. Just as the trio catch sight of the boat, they hear its engines roar to life and watch it glide away. Sable's fever finally breaks two days later, and he wakes to find he's in a Vietnamese farming village. They're 12 kilometers inland at a village Troon is familiar with. Sable is shocked to see that a portion of the wall is made out of part of an aircraft. He pulls back some planks and finds it's part of the plane from the picture with Bill Pratt and Rusty Olson. They show the photo to the villagers, who remember when the plane crashed. Both men survived initially, but Pratt was badly injured, and the red-headed Rusty Olson set out through the jungle alone. They hid Pratt in a nearby cave, but his injuries were too severe, and he died. 
The villagers show them to the cave, and Sable collects Bill Pratt's dog tags from the remains. The three head toward the coast to catch the fishing boat, but thinking they've found all their answers, they don't stop at another village they pass, where a red-headed foreigner toils in the fields. Back in New York, Hollis is relieved to know she can now mourn her husband and move on, and she welcomes Sonny into her home. The cover features an image of John Sable after he's been captured by the Vietnamese patrol. The interior art is filled with lush images of the jungle as the trio roam throughout the countryside. The page when they make their first attempt for the boat is a particular favorite, as images of the men swimming toward the boat are interspersed with images of a ticking clock. The dead body of Bill Pratt is gruesome, with notably broken bones protruding through the decaying cloth of his uniform. The realization that they were so close to Rusty Olson at the end of the story is saddening, but punctuates the tragedies of war through the image of this lone man toiling away so far from home. The expression on his face shows he lost all hope long ago. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Green Arrow, number nine, Here There Be Dragons, part one, October 1988. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Ed Hannigan. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Laquament. Editor Mike Gold. The story opens with Oliver and Dinah strolling along a street in Seattle. Winter has passed and spring is in full bloom. They walk past Cap's Hobbit shop and Oliver stares at a statue of Smaug the Dragon and Dinah leans in close and asks, Do you ever think of her? Oliver quickly answers no, to which Dinah replies, then how did you know who I meant? That night, Oliver has a nightmare from the time when Dinah was tortured during the events of the Longbow Hunters. In Japan, Shadow is sitting humbly while the leader of the Yakuza clan questions her about whether she killed all of the men on the list she was given. She replies that all were killed by her hand except one, who was killed by another. The leader asks why she allowed that to happen, to which she replies, his vengeance was more important than yours. The Yakuza leader demands payment, and forces Shadow's teacher and mentor to stand with a small disc in front of his chest. Shadow must shoot an arrow toward him. If she is good enough, she can hit the disc instead of killing her teacher. For Shadow, it's an easy task, and she lets the arrow fly. It strikes the small disc directly in the center, leaving her teacher unharmed. 
but the Yakuza leader does not consider this payment. He stares at the jade ring on Shadow's right thumb and says, I will have that jade ring and the thumb that wears it. Shadow takes the sword and prepares to cut off her own thumb, but her teacher calls out, No! The Yakuza leader turns to find an arrow aimed directly at him. Her teacher tells Shadow to go. She picks up her bow and quiver with three arrows and runs. Once she is gone, her teacher lays down his bow and arrows. The leader says, You are dead, old man, to which the teacher replies, If my spirit flies this night, it will have company on its journey. The Yakuza leader pulls out a gun and shoots and kills the old man. Just then, an arrow flies through the leader's skull, killing him. In the distance, Shadow turns. Her quiver now holds only two arrows. The cover features a profile of Shadow, her left arm exposed, showing the dragon tattoo running up her arm and over her shoulder. She is holding her bow with an arrow in hand. In the background is a silhouette of Green Arrow and an artistic rendering of a dragon. This issue is lushly illustrated. It may not be Mike Grell drawing, but the team of Hannigan, Giordano, and McLaughlin really excel here. The title page is a two-page spread of Oliver's nightmare with images from the Lombo hunters when Dinah was being tortured. The scenes in Japan are beautiful, with a pagoda and a colorful Japanese garden. When the story becomes intense, as Shadow must shoot an arrow at her teacher, the art switches to only dark blues and blacks over several pages as the tension builds as Shadow draws the arrow and shoots. It's a gorgeous sequence. The nobility of Shadow's teacher is evident as he readily sacrifices his own life to prevent the Yakuza leader from maiming his student and destroying her abilities. It's a very exciting start to this four-part story. And of course, being fans of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, it was great to see that shop used in the story. And just to note that there is appropriately a figure of Robin Hood on display in the window with the statue of Smaug. Green Arrow number 10, Here There Be Dragons, part 2. November 1988. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Ed Hannigan. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Lacomant. Editor Mike Gold. Associate Editor Brian Augustin. Oliver wakes to Dinah singing Happy Birthday and pushing a cart with a cake covered in so many candles that Oliver wonders if she had to get a permit from the fire department. For his birthday, Oliver chooses to go to the zoo which doesn't surprise Dinah, who replies that she knows his ulterior motive is that the zoo has the best chili dogs in town. In the early morning hours on a tropical beach, several armed men come ashore in an inflatable raft. They approach a small bungalow, and inside we see Shadow open her eyes. The men hurl several grenades through the windows, and as their grenades explode, the men begin to fire machine guns into the house, but Shadow is already outside. Two men quickly fall to arrows. They turn their gunfire toward the direction where the arrows came, but Shadow has already moved. Another man falls from an arrow, then Shadow leaps past another, lifting the pins from the grenades on his belt as she passes. Before he even realizes what has happened, he is engulfed in an explosion. Back at the zoo, Oliver and Dinah have both noticed they are being followed and proceed into a dark building designed for nocturnal animals. The two men who enter the building behind them quickly find themselves pinned to the wall. One of the men is Osborne, a government agent we met a few issues ago, and he tells Oliver that he just wants to talk. He has a proposition for him. He tells Oliver a story from World War II. General MacArthur was forced to pull American troops out of the Philippines as the Japanese advanced. To try to save their national treasures, the government buried 15 treasure troves throughout the country, but by the time the war was over, 
those who knew the locations of the treasures had all died. However, recently a Yakuza clan got hold of a map and began buying real estate around the Philippines for development, but it was only a cover to dig up the treasures. The group successfully dug up six treasure troves, but then suddenly stopped. They now know that a woman with a dragon tattoo stole the map from the Yakuza, and they know that Oliver has a connection to the woman, and they want him to find her. Oliver has no reason to believe Osborne will do the right thing with the map if he retrieves it, so he refuses. But then Osborne reminds him that he used the stolen contra money to fund charities for children. If he doesn't do what he wants, Osborne will turn him over to the IRS. Oliver reluctantly agrees, and Osborne tells him about the nighttime raid on the bungalow. It was in Hawaii, and they think that Shadow is still on the islands. When Oliver arrives in Hawaii, he begins checking out sporting goods stores until he finds one that recently sold a supply of white feathers. He pays the store clerk off to get an address and follows the lead to a boat in the harbor. As he boards the boat, he sees Shadow standing with an arrow aimed at him, and in the last panel of the story, she lets the arrow fly directly at him. The cover is by Mike Grell and features an image of Green Arrow with a bow drawn, and he is framed by an image of the rising sun from the Japanese flag. As with the previous issue, the art is excellent throughout. The team of Hannigan, Giordano, and McLaughlin have really hit a stride with great panel layouts and nice color palettes. The sequence at the bungalow in Hawaii is particularly good. The colors are dark and mysterious, punctuated by bright explosions, and the panels are filled with fast action. The two-page title page comes during this sequence, and the silhouette image of Shadow in the Night is beautiful, and the scene of her walking away from the burning bungalow with a red sky in the background is stunning. And my favorite panel in the book comes on the next to the last page as Green Arrow leaps from his balcony to head to the harbor. It's a gorgeous view of Green Arrow with a profile of Oliver against a sky streaked in red, orange, and yellow. It's an amazing image. Green Arrow number 11, Here There Be Dragons, Part 3, December 1988. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Ed Hannigan, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Laquamet. Editor, Mike Gold. Associate Editor, Brian Augustin. The issue opens with a blindfolded shadow aiming her bow. She releases the arrow, and it strikes a small fruit hanging from a tree, propelling it toward another tree with three already skewered fruit. A small bungalow is behind her, and a man carrying a machine gun is sneaking toward her and aiming his weapon. Suddenly, a chair crashes through a window, causing the still blindfolded shadow to spin and strike the assailant with an arrow. Through the broken window, we see that it is an injured Oliver Queen, with a bandage around his torso, who threw the chair through the window to attract Shadow's attention. Oliver collapses, and Shadow carries him back to bed. We see the wound from the arrow where she shot him in the chest has started to bleed once again. When Oliver wakes, he sees Shadow in the yard once again practicing her archery. He asks her how long he's been asleep. Three days this time, a week the time before that. He asks why he isn't dead, because he knows she never misses. She explains that she couldn't tell it was him until the moment she released the arrow, but luckily she must have twitched the moment she recognized him, causing the arrow to be slightly deflected. She wants to know why he has come looking for her. He tells her about the laundered money he used for charity, and the government man Osborne who is holding that knowledge over him. He tells her they know about the map of the treasures from the Philippines she stole from the Yakuza. In exchange, she tells him the story of her disgraced father and how she has to atone for his failures. She tells him about the teacher who not only taught her archery, but also gave her books on art, science, and literature to fill her mind. 
Feeling a little better, Oliver steps outside and meets Emilio Alvaro. He is an older man whose shadow simply describes as her friend. The two have been moving among the many empty vacation bungalows in Hawaii this time of year. Emilio is tending to the gardens as payment for their stays. Oliver begins to practice his archery, but the injury has definitely set him back. He slowly improves over time until he is once again able to hit the bullseye on the target. Shadow watches his technique and thinks to herself that he dominates the bow with strength instead of combining to become one with the bow. Oliver asks to try her bow, and while she initially hesitates, she does finally let him use it, and he misses the target completely. In return, she takes his bow and splits his arrow in two on her first shot. The two go for a swim that evening, and when they return they see footprints in the sand on the beach and know more assassins will be waiting along the path. While Shadow slowly follows the path, Oliver sneaks along the perimeter and the two of them manage to take out the assassins. They find an injured Emilio who tells Shadow not to make so much fuss over an old man. His only concern is who will care for the flowers. As he dies, Shadow promises that she will. A boat in the harbor starts its engine and the two of them know that means a message will get back to the Yakuza, bringing more assassins by morning. Shadow runs to the cliff and releases an arrow into the air. She turns away from the cliff without even watching the arrow's trajectory, which takes it down toward the boat and directly through the torso of the man at the helm. The boat veers off course and crashes into the rocks exploding. The cover features a profile of Green Arrow looking across a bay at a setting sun. Two crossed arrows separate his profile from an image of Shadow standing holding her bow with her dragon tattoo in full view. Those of you who listen to the Who's Who podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network will recognize extensive use of the Surprint technique in this issue. It's used effectively here for flashback sequences, as first Oliver and then Shadow tell each other their background stories. These flashbacks are drawn on a separate layer in a single shade of blue to represent those past events while full-color images of the characters in the present are overlaid on the Surprint. This issue features some gorgeous dusk and dawn images. We see scenes of Shadow walking in the moonlight with her bow, as well as the nighttime swim that she and Oliver take late in the story. And my favorite image is easily the final one in the issue, which features a silhouette of Oliver and Shadow framed by the explosion of the boat crashing into the rocks. Truly stunning. Green Arrow number 12, Here There Be Dragons, Part 4, Winter 1988. Writer Mike Grill, pencils Ed Hannigan, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, letters John Costanza, colors Julia Lackamut, editor Mike Gold, associate editor Brian Augustin. The issue opens with Oliver and Shadow burying the body of their friend Emilio Alvaro. From there, the two board the sailboat she has and go to the harbor at Honolulu to resupply. They plan to be quick before the Yakuza has time to track them, but they are already being watched. At the market, Oliver briefly loses sight of Shadow, and when she reappears, she tells him they've already found them, and he sees a dead body down an alley. Back at the boat, the two change out of their civilian clothes and collect their weapons. They've decided to pick a spot to make a stand where no innocents will be hurt. At an abandoned warehouse, several Yakuza assassins enter from multiple directions, through doors, through windows, and through the roof. The assassins throw several stun grenades, but in the blinding light they find themselves under fire and several of them are hit with arrows. Oliver notices he is unable to shake one particular assassin who persistently follows him in the darkness. 
He is backed into a corner, but Shadow shoots the man with an arrow. Oliver picks up a small beeping receiver and finds the signal gets stronger until he finds a transmitter hidden in his quiver. But then he sees the bleeding assassin at his feet pull the pen from a grenade, and moments later there's a large explosion. Later, Oliver meets up with Osborne and two other men who Osborne tells him are Japanese agents. Oliver tells Osborne that Shadow died in the explosion as he hands over a map which Osborne turns and hands over to one of the two men with him. Oliver explains it isn't the original map. The original map was Emilio Avaro, the last surviving member of the team who originally buried the treasures in the Philippines. The map is the best approximation Shadow could create from the stories that Emilio told her. Then Oliver says he figured out Osborne was doing this all on his own. He was the only one who had the opportunity to plant the tracking device in his quiver, and that means the men with him aren't Japanese agents, but are in fact members of the Yakuza working with him. Osborne leans back and smiles, and then tells the two men to shoot Oliver. As they pull out their guns, an arrow rips through the torso of one of them, and the other turns and quickly runs away. Oliver says, I lied, as Shadow steps into view. Just then a helicopter flies in and bathes them in bright lights. It's the FBI, and when they land, Oliver hands over the recording he made of his conversation with Osborne. As Osborne is handcuffed, he laughs at Oliver and says, You don't really think I'm going to jail, do you? Oliver agrees that he'll likely get out, but then it's his turn to smile. The Yakuza assassin they just let escape is carrying a canister holding a fake map and a tracking device. The Yakuza won't take kindly when they realize that Osborne led the FBI to their door. That evening, as they part ways, Oliver says, I don't even know your name, to which Shadow replies, and I don't know yours. This was an excellent four-part story and is a perfect example of why we've always liked the character of Shadow. As much as we enjoy the Arrow TV series, we really wish they had done more things like this with the character of Shadow. It was a missed opportunity in our opinion. The cover features an image of Green Arrow and Shadow standing on top of a large pile of bodies, each shot with an arrow. The excellent art continues in the interior. I especially like the two-page title page that features nighttime scenes at Emilio's grave at the top of the page and a bright image of the sailboat on the ocean at the bottom of the page, a definite contrast in mood and tone. The battle in the warehouse covers several pages. There's no dialogue, but the varied panel layouts and camera angles make the story move fast, and the dark colors make everything look mysterious. Another favorite in this section is a full-page splash of shadows swinging into view and knocking several assassins down at once. The first three issues of the story arc were very fast-paced, as was the first half of this issue, but it slows down in the last few pages as Oliver explains what has really been going on and tricks Osborne. I particularly liked that the real map turned out to be Shadow's friend Emilio, a very nice twist. The somber last page as Oliver and Shadow say goodbye is beautifully done. There's a gorgeous dust sky filled with yellow and orange, and most of the time all we can see are silhouettes of Oliver and Shadow, a great page to end a great story arc. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we received since last time. We appreciate every comment we receive. They add so much to the show. So a big thank you to everyone who took the time to write in or to get in touch through social media. Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog posted, Gotta love the Sutherlands and their amazing podcasts. 
He enjoyed episode five and said, once again, you two presented the stories in an interesting and entertaining fashion. I especially smiled when you got to the part about Sable showing up at the party and reading to the kids. Keep up the good work. I'm eagerly awaiting the next episode. Brian Mulvey says he loves our unbridled enthusiasm for the worlds of Mike Grell. Joe Crawford posted on his non-discerning readers blog that he started reading John Sable as recommended by the excellent podcast Warlord Worlds. He read the first two issues and will be reading more. He added, I've had it for a while and Warlord Worlds has inspired me to read it. Love the first issue. Chris Mount shared a photo of the John Sable novel on Facebook that he was reading and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast chimed in and let his friends know that he absolutely loves that John Sable book. Michael Carlisle of the Crap Box of Cthulhu blog called Warlord Worlds a class act podcast and urged others to give them a listen. Ashford of Straight Out of Gallifrey and Feathers and Foes of Birds of Prey podcast is enjoying the show and told us that he plans to grab those Green Arrow issues you guys covered on the last Warlord Worlds. Karen Williams of Between the Pages shared a surprising cover featuring both the Warlord and the Thing, along with a link to Ross Purcell's Super Team Family, The Lost Issues blog. It features the greatest team-ups that never happened, but should have. We always enjoy seeing those imaginative covers, and we'll add the link in our show notes. Jeff Nettleton let us know he learned about Warlord Worlds thanks to our appearance on the Film & Water podcast. He sent in some great feedback about Episode 5, and we've exchanged several emails back and forth since then about comics and many other topics we have in common. He shared, I'm a lifelong Mike Grell fan, discovering his work when he first broke in at D.C., Grail has always been one of my top five favorite artists and the one I most wanted to meet. I eventually was able to meet him at a convention and got to talk to him for an extended period of time. I got him to sign my copy of the Dawning Starblaze edition of The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, where Grail did the illustrations, inspired by the original work of author Howard Pyle. I got a Robin Hood sketch from Grail, which hangs proudly on my wall. He continued, I read Star Slayer in the first comics run before I was able to track down the Pacific Comics issues. I loved the heck out of that original story and was excited to see it come back. I still think Star Slayer would make an awesome film and wonder why Hollywood hasn't jumped on it. I haven't read the Green Arrows series since it first came out, but have vague recollections of the story, particularly the young woman meeting Dinah. It was a nice callback to the Longbow Hunters and part of what I enjoyed about the series. Grail would bring back characters and tie into past events without retreading the same ground. The Sable issues were a couple of my favorites of the series. First, we have a nice, quiet character episode. Then we get some action and intrigue, showing the depth and breadth of what Grell was doing on the book. I had almost completely abandoned comics, apart from a few issues here and there, when I discovered the first two issues of John Sable, as well as the first issue of American Flag. I was hooked and started exploring the independent world. Jeff has since gone back and listened to our earlier episodes and shared some thoughts about episode two as well. He said, I enjoyed the discussion of the books, as they are some of my favorite issues of both Warlord and John Sable, and the Green Arrow story ably demonstrates something I've said quite often in regards to more recent era comics. The Bronze Age generation knew how to write puzzles and mysteries, which allowed the heroes to show off their brains more than their brawn. Thanks again, Jeff, for sharing your time and your thoughts. We really enjoyed our email exchanges. Plus, Jeff has started listening to Trekker Talk, so we'll have some feedback from him on the next episode of that show as well. And in wrapping up our feedback section, we want to share that we recently made our first ever guest appearance on another podcast, 
when we join Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes and the Two True Freaks Podcast Network to discuss the 1979 sci-fi TV series Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, starring Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray. Gene was the perfect host, friendly, kind, helpful, and put us at ease so that we had a great conversation. We really had fun talking to Gene about the fun series, and all three of us shared stories about meeting Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray at different conventions over the years. We'll include a link in our show notes in case some of you want to listen. That was followed closely by our second guest appearance on another podcast as we joined Aquamazing Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine, the Film and Water Podcast, and the Fire and Water Podcast Network to discuss the classic crime comedy, Gross Point Blank. And of course, you just heard that is where Jeff Nettleton learned about our podcast. Gross Point Blank is a smart and witty comedy that is infinitely rewatchable. If you haven't seen it, we certainly recommend it. And a big thank you to Rob for making us feel welcome and making us sound great. We'll include a link to that episode as well, and we hope you'll give it a listen. And we want to thank everyone who shared kind remarks about those guest spots. We shared those comments in detail on episode 16 of Trekker Talk. That's just one more reason to give that show a listen. Hint, hint. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported Warlord Worlds on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it in the next episode. And also forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just email us and let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next episode as well. Aaron Bias, Alejandro Huayo Maybe, Andrew in Belfast, Andrew Laylands of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, Andrew Luckett, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, Ashford of Feathers and Foes, BC Fan 101, Brian Mulvey, Chris Mounts, Chris Tyler, Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics in Color, Comics in the Golden Age, Corey Drew, Craig Lee McGinnis, Dan O'Connor, Daniel Garand, David A. Gutierrez, David Bretter, DC in the 80s, Derek William Crabb, Derek Richardson, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Ed, Terry, and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Eric Manis, Fernando Roca, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page, and Holly Elm of Holly Wrote It, James Couch, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast, Jim Ramoldi, Joe Crawford for the Non-Discerning Reader Blog, John Baker, Jose Rivera, Joe Slab of Aquaman Shrine, Julius Pantera, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Kevin Thomas King, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, Lori Sutton, writer of You Choose Adventure Books, Luke Dobb of Dobb Creative, Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destruction Directive, Mark Sweeney of I'm the Gun, Martin Gray of Too Dangerous, Michael Lane, Michael Mikulichik, Minor Sector, Paul Carroll, Professor Allen of Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly of the Film and Water Podcast, Robert Wolfman Bratcher, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly of Fire and Water Podcast Network, Shag Matthews, Firestorm Fan, Siskoid of Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, Son of Cthulhu of Crapbox Son of Cthulhu Blog, Stephen Jones, Terry Mahoney, Tim Wallace of Horde Industries Blue Beetle Blog, Van Z of All Star Comics Review Podcast, and Zeb Oswalt. 
Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help the show get noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show so you always know when there's a new episode. You may also enjoy our other podcast, Trick or Talk, about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. In our opinions, Mike Grell and Ron Randall are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Music